good evening. How are you? Good. <laughs> I think, well, we'll see. We'll see. Well, uh, I feel like it's been a long time since I've been here because it has been a long time since I've been here. Uh, my role here at IBC has changed a bit, and so part of that means I just don't get to come see you all as much as I would like. So I'm really excited uh, to be with you this evening, to share with you from God's Word. It really is my favorite thing to do. Now, I see a lot of familiar faces, people that I know and love, and I see a lot of new faces. And so first of all, if I don't know you, I'd love a chance just to say hi to you and to, to meet you. But second of all, one of the things that you should know about me is that I was born and raised in the New York, New Jersey area. And like it or not, I'm really proud of that. I'm not sure I should be, but I am. I was born in New York City, raised in New Jersey, lived and worked in New York City till I moved here to Dallas just seven years ago. And I've been in Dallas long enough to know that there are certain things that Texas has to offer that New Jersey just doesn't. <laughs> now, I've got a list, but we don't have time for that. So I'm going to give you my top three. Are you ready? Top three things that I think Texas has to offer that New Jersey doesn't. Number one, Tex-Mex. Because, because I love me some queso, and in New Jersey, we think cheese whiz is queso. So, Tex-Mex. Okay, number two, Whataburger. I don't even like Whataburger. I actually don't eat there, but I thought if I didn't name it as number two, some of you who are really passionate about Whataburger would get mad at me. So. We don't have that in New Jersey, Whataburger. Okay, number three, Bucky's. <laughs> because Bucky's is fascinating. Like, I, the first time I went to Bucky's, I was like, what in the world is going on? It's a gas station, that's a convenience store, that's a gift shop, that's the size of a warehouse. And it's filled with all sorts of things, from beaver nuggets to beef jerky to swimwear and sunglasses and toys. And don't forget about the sparkling clean bathrooms. Like, Bucky's is amazing. Did you know, this is part of my sermon research, this is what happens to me. Bucky's <laughs> has two world records. I looked this up. Bucky's has two world records. One, for being the largest, largest convenience store, and two, for being the largest car wash. Yeah, <laughs> impressive, because after all, everything is bigger in Texas. <laughs> but there's at least, at least, one thing that New Jersey has that Texas doesn't. You ready? Brad Pitt, I who said that? <laughs> this is so going off the rails, okay. <laughs> My answer was the Four Seasons, and not the hotel or the 60s pop band. The actual seasons, like fall and winter, spring and summer. Because in Texas, fall lasts for about eight hours. <laughs> Like, one day it's 100 degrees, the next day it's 85, and we're all wearing flannel shirts, scarves, and boots. And I am not hating on that. I am one of you now. <laughs> because fall lasts for less than a day, so you have to make these seasons up. <laughs> but in New Jersey, there are actual seasons. 
There are weeks of fall where the temperature gets cooler and the leaves on the trees begin to change color and the plants grow dormant. And that leads us to winter, which can often feel long and harsh. It's cold. We get uh, a lot of snowstorms and nor'easters. It gets dark early. It, it feels almost lifeless. And then it begins to warm up. And that means spring is arriving. And there is a, a sense of life and vitality uh, as the flowers and the plants be, begin to bloom and grow. And that brings with it much warmer weather. And so summer appears. And this is the hottest time of year. Not Texas hot, but still hot. So people spend a lot more time outdoors. And they're going on picnics and hiking and biking and spending the day at the beach. In New Jersey, we have beaches. It's beautiful. And they're doing all sorts of outdoor activities. There's a sense of fun and joy and rest. And this idea of seasons is, a, is often seen throughout great lit literature as a metaphor for life. We see in the writings of Shakespeare or Yeats and, and Frost. And we talk about it that way. We talk about the different seasons of our lives because life doesn't ever stay the same, does it? It's always changing. It's filled with ups and downs. And we've all experienced seasons where it feels like spring, where there's a, a vitality and an excitement. New things are happening. Things are going really well. Maybe it's a new or, or, or renewed relationship or a new job opportunity. It's a season of fresh new possibilities. And a summer season in life might be a season where there's just a, it's just a time of fun. Maybe there's joy, joy of a, a healthy relationship or a healthy marriage. What you sowed in the spring, you start to see the growth of in the summer. And then there's fall, and fall is typically a season of reflection. It's a season where you begin to look back on things, because the things that you started in the spring have likely come to an end. And some of that is good, but some of that is not so good. And so it's a season of reflecting and learning and preparing for that next season in life. And then there's winter. And winter can feel dark and lifeless. And maybe you're in a season of winter right now where life is not going as you expected or maybe it's not even going the way you would want. Maybe it's that call from the doctor and he tells you that the test results are in and it's not good. Or maybe it's that you're grieving the loss of someone that you loved. Maybe it's a relationship breakup. Maybe that guy that you've been dating for years that you thought would, this relationship would end in marriage suddenly tells you that it's over. Or maybe it's that the company that you've worked for for so many years gets acquired and your job is deemed unnecessary. Winter can be hard. Life can be hard, and yet it can be good and beautiful. And we'd all love to be in seasons of spring and summer. We'll even take fall, but none of us, none of us wants to be in winter. And yet life is often filled with seasons of winter, isn't it? So how do we get through the difficult, often painful seasons of life? How do we make it through winter? This week, you've been learning, reading about the story of Joseph. And Joseph had some winter seasons in his life. He had some ups and downs. He had these seasons where it was filled with tragedy and 
hopelessness. So how did he make it through? How do we make it through? I think we find the answer to that question by looking at Joseph's story, and here it is. Center your life on God, and remember that he is with you in every season of life. Friends, what would change in your life today? What would change in your life today if you really believed God was with you? This evening, I want to take a look at Joseph's story to show you what it looks like to really live like you believe God is with you. So, we're going to spend most of our time in Genesis 39. If you have your Bibles, that's where we'll be. Uh, Let me recap the story to catch you up to where we are at that point. Now, Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and he is his daddy's favorite. Jacob loves Joseph so much so that he makes him this long, ornate robe with long sleeves. And when you wear a robe like this, it signifies that you don't do manual labor. Now, Jacob's family, they're shepherds. What kind of work do they do? Manual labor, hard, back-breaking work out in the fields. But while his brothers are out in the fields, that's not Joseph's deal. He's at home with daddy. The other kids are are wearing clothes from Goodwill, and Joseph's just walking around in his Gucci robe. (laughs) And when his brothers see the way Jacob loves and favors Joseph, they get angry, and they treat him unkindly. They hate him. And then Joseph has two two dreams, and he decides that he's going to share these dreams with his brothers. He's 17, he's young, he's arrogant, he's brash. And so he tells his brothers and his father about these dreams where his brothers and his parents are bowing down to him. Now, this is totally for free. This is not anything to do with the sermon. But if you have a dream where your siblings and your parents are bowing down to you, you should probably keep that to yourself, (laughs) Joseph. That's not what he does. And so one day, Joseph's brothers, they're out in the fields, and they're herding the goats and the sheep, and Joseph's home with daddy. And so Jacob says, hey, go check on your brothers. And so Joseph goes out there. He finds his brothers, and, he see, and they see him from a distance, and they decide that they're going to kill him and throw him in a pit and then tell their father that a ferocious animal has attacked and killed him. That's their plan. And they're done with Joseph. They're done with his dreams, and they want to kill him. So they find Joseph. They strip him of his robe. They put him in this pit, and then they sit down to eat some sandwiches. (laughs) That's cold. (laughs) Joseph's in this pit screaming, beaten, bruised, naked, and they're like chowing down on chips and turkey sandwiches. And in the end, one of the brothers, Judah, comes up with the plan. He's, why should we kill him? Why won't we? Let's make some money off of him. And so this caravan of Ishmaelite traders comes along. They sell him to them as a slave. And they take Joseph's um, robe and they dip it in goat's blood. And they bring it to Jacob and they say, look, we found this. Your boy Joseph is dead. And Jacob mourns and grieves for Joseph. That brings us to Genesis 39. Verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. 
Joseph comes to Egypt, he's in the slave market, and Potiphar buys him. He's the captain of the guard. Potiphar is the commander-in-chief of Pharaoh's armed forces. He's the commander-in-chief of one of the most, if not the most, powerful country that exists at that time. He's an important, powerful, influential man, and Joseph goes to work for him. And very likely, he starts out doing a menial, manual labor type of work. And day in and day out, he's working as a slave, doing just tedious, probably degrading work. And he must have thought to himself, look, maybe I was arrogant. I shouldn't have flaunted my dreams and my robe in front of my brothers. But did I really deserve to be sold as a slave by my own brothers? But that doesn't stop Joseph from doing the next right thing right where he is. Take a look, verse two. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, if you underline in your Bible, I'd underline that phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. Because that phrase, or the phrase, the Lord was with him, shows up four times just in this chapter. And whenever you see repetition like that in the scripture, that's to get our attention. And Joseph finds himself a slave in a foreign land, and he trusts the Lord is with him. And so he does the next right thing right where he is. He's in a terrible situation, and he makes the most of it. And God gives him success. And Potiphar is even aware that God is with Joseph. And that's what makes him successful. Because Joseph must have shared with Potiphar, this is who God is. This is what God has done for me. And it shows in how he does his work. He, he looks at his work even as a slave, as a way to honor God. So much so that he moves from being the lowliest of slaves to becoming Potiphar's personal attendant, his, his chief of staff. Do you see the faithfulness uh, that Joseph lived with because he believes that God is with him? Now, life is going pretty well for Joseph. Sure, he's been taken from his family. He's thought to be dead uh, by his father, but he's making it in Egypt. He's chief of staff to one of the most powerful, influential men in the world. That's not too shabby for a slave. His hard work, his faithfulness, his trust in God is paying off. And so Joseph must have began dreaming and hoping. Maybe one day, maybe one day I can earn my freedom. Maybe one day I'll see my father again. It's a season of springtime where there are exciting new possibilities. Joseph's future looks promising. And then things take a turn. Verse 6. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? 
And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. And one day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Potiphar's wife notices that Joseph's a good-looking guy. Now, the English translation of that phrase, come to bed with me, doesn't actually convey the forcefulness of her words. Because in the original language, in Hebrew, it's actually only two words. It's an imperative, a command. And if I was to translate it, the literal translation of that phrase that, that she says is just this, sex now. <laughs> That's what she says. And Joseph refuses. And Joseph says, it's not just wrong because you're married to Potiphar. It's wrong because you're not married to me. And here's what I want to make clear. The Bible has the highest, most glorious view of sex. So sexual desire is not wrong. And that's not what's happening here. This isn't sexual desire. This is lust. And lust is desire out of control. Lust is sexual desire, a good desire that has gone terribly wrong. And day in and day out, Potiphar's wife lusts after Joseph. And yet Joseph lives with sexual integrity. He recognizes that his body is sacred and that he must offer all of who he is, including his body, to God. So how does he say no to sin? How does Joseph resist temptation? Well, one, uh, way, one approach is to use willpower. You're strong enough, you're resourceful enough, you're smart enough, just say no, you can resist temptation, use your willpower. That's not what Joseph does. He doesn't look internally and try to manage his sin through his willpower. He looks externally to God. And he says, how could I do this wicked thing? How could I sin against God? How could I do such an offensive thing against the God who is with me? And oftentimes when you and I face a difficult situation, we think it's all up to us. It's all on me. I have to figure it out. I have to make things happen. But that's not what Joseph does. He centers his life on God and he remembers that God is with him in every season of life. Do you see the integrity that Joseph lives with because he believes that God is with him? Sin is the disordering of our loves. We love what we should not love, or we don't love the things that we should love enough. And only God can reorder our love so that we center our hearts and our lives on him. Now, if you try to use willpower, that'll work for a little bit. We could all do that for a little bit, but not in the long run. It's never going to last. If we want to reorder our loves, what we need to do, the only way that can happen is if we have a love that is greater, that is superior than all other loves. And the only love that can do that is God. If God is the great love of your life, if he is the supreme desire of your heart, then all the other loves, all the other desires will be rightly ordered and they will find their right place in your life. Let's pick up the story of Joseph, verse 13. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. 
She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. And then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Things go from bad to worse, and Joseph is falsely accused for a crime he did not commit. But Potiphar puts him in the prison of Pharaoh's staff. And so it's very likely that Potiphar doesn't really believe his wife because a crime of this magnitude would result in immediate death and execution. And so instead, he sends him to a prison, and it's not even the worst prison, because even here, God is protecting Joseph. Joseph has done everything right. In the beginning of a story, he's this young, brash 17-year-old whose life blows up. But here we see Joseph some years later, and he's done all the right things. He, he works hard, he trusts God, he resists temptation, and his life blows up anyway. Joseph is in the midst of a winter season of life. Verse 20. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. And he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Joseph does everything right, and still his life is a mess. He's a convicted criminal. He's back in the pit again, except this time it's prison. He's been broken and busted up by life. He's lost everything again. And most people at this point would have given up on God. But not Joseph. God is with Joseph, and Joseph is with God. And Joseph reminds himself that God is with him. He chooses to trust God and to do the next right thing right where he is. And he works faithfully and he rises to be in charge of all the prisoners. And so even here in prison, things are looking up for Joseph. And in prison, he meets Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker. And they both have dreams and he interprets their dreams. And the cupbearer is released just as Joseph had, had said. And all Joseph asks him is, he says, just, just remember me, be kind to me because I am an innocent man. Get me out of this prison. But the cupbearer forgets Joseph. And Joseph sits in that prison for two more years until one day Pharaoh has a dream and no one can interpret it. And in that moment, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And so they get Joseph out of the prison, they clean him up, and they bring him before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says this to him, Genesis 41, 15. I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And the room falls quiet. Because Joseph has just told Pharaoh, who believes he is a god, that he knows the one true God. Do you see the courage that Joseph lives with because he believes that God is with him? Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams and he says, God says that there will be seven year, uh, years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. And then he comes up with a, a plan. He says, find a wise and discerning man and put him in charge and use the seven years of abundance to get ready for the seven years of famine. 
And Pharaoh looks right into Joseph's eyes and he says, Joseph, you are that man. And he makes him second in command of all of Egypt. And the seven years of abundance come and Joseph stores up food so that when the years of famine come, people come from all over the world to buy food from Joseph in Egypt. Now Joseph's story continues next week. But for today, we need to answer the question, how do we get through the difficult, often painful seasons of life? How do we make it through winter? Two applications for you. Here's the first one. Enlarge your perspective. Enlarge your perspective. We will all experience winter seasons of life, and maybe this is where you are this evening. But I want you to hear this. There is both a visible story and an invisible story being written. The visible story is what you and I can see. It's the tragedy, the injustice, the unfairness of Joseph's life. It's Joseph as a slave. It's Joseph falsely accused. It's Joseph thrown into prison. It's Joseph forgotten by the cupbearer. But at the same time, there is an invisible story going on. And you and I have a perspective on Joseph's life that we cannot have on our own. Because if Joseph uh, had not been sold into slavery, if Potiphar's wife had not falsely accused him, if he had not gone into prison, he would have never met the cupbearer. And if these things had happened, maybe he would have remained Jacob's favorite boy. Maybe he would have remained Potiphar's uh, chief of staff, but he would have never become second in command of all of Egypt. And we'll see next week that this allows him to save not only his family, but thousands of others as well. God saved Joseph through the tragic circumstances of his life. God was with Joseph, and Joseph was with God. God is with you. Will you be with God? Maybe your visible story feels tragic and hopeless. Friends, there is an invisible story being written. God is always working in the shadows, even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, and nothing and no one can stop or thwart the plan and care of God for your life. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is a, a famed psychiatrist and author, and she writes this. The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These people have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. God is doing something in you because beautiful people do not just happen. It may feel like winter, but spring is coming. It may feel dark and dead, but God will bring life again. Enlarge your perspective. Second application. Surrender control and remember that God is with you. I am at the start of what feels like a winter season in life. I'm just navigating some difficult circumstances. Many of you have heard me talk about my mom. She's one of my heroes. Just this uh, faithful follower of Jesus, this, this strongest, most resilient woman I know, this incredible godly woman, uh, such a, an amazing wife and mother and grandmother and sister and friend, and I could go on. And my mom 
has had some health issues recently, and it's not looking good for her. And I so badly want to make it better. But I can't. Because no matter how great our doctors are, no matter how world-class our neurologists are, I can't change what's happening to her body. And that's hard for me. And not only am I faced with the reality that, that I can't do anything about this, but I'm also faced with the hard reality that it's only going to get worse. And so what I have to do daily, often multiple times a day, is to center my heart on God and to remember that he is with me. And he's with my mom and with our family as we navigate what feels like just uncharted waters for us. That he loves me, that he loves her more than I love her. And then as I do that, I surrender control as best as I know how, yielding my life to God trusting in the character of God. And there's a practice that I do that I've done for a while that's just been helpful to me to, uh, as I do this. And it's pretty simple, and yet it's probably been one of the most impactful things I do. And it's just pausing throughout my day for a few minutes, it's typically somewhere between two to five minutes, not long at all, to be present with God and to remember that he is present with me. And I just sit in silence, and I look at God looking at me in love, and I receive the Father's love for me. And I try to center my thoughts and my attention and my affection on God. And I get distracted about every 10 seconds. And every 10 seconds, it's an opportunity for me to turn my thoughts and my attention and my affection back to God. And I think God delights in that. And sometimes I light a candle, and there's nothing magical about that, but that just helps. It's just a, a visible reminder to me that God is with me. And I do this in the morning. I do it after lunch. I do it in the evening before I go to bed. And then throughout my day, in just these really ordinary moments, when I'm sitting at a red light, when I'm washing dishes or folding my laundry, I just talk to God. Instead of turning on the TV or turning up the radio, I just... Talk to God, and I am reminded that God is with me, that I'm not alone, and I remember that I am only seeing the visible story and that there is an invisible story that God is writing, and he is with me. And my visible story says that my mom is not going to get better. What is your visible story saying? Maybe it's saying that the relationship is over. Or that the diagnosis is not good. Or maybe it's saying that the company that you gave years to doesn't want you anymore. Maybe it feels like God is silent, but do not equate the silence of God for the absence of God. Do the next right thing right where you are. There is an invisible story that God is writing, and he is with you even when you can't see him, even when you can't feel him. Enlarge your perspective, surrender control, and remember that God is with you. Because Joseph believed that God was with him, he lived with faithfulness, integrity, and courage. He, he believed that no matter how bad his visible story looked, God was writing an invisible story, and God was with him. Friends, here's the question. How would your life change today if you really believed that God was with you? Center your life on God and remember that he's with you 
in every season of life. Before I close us in prayer, I just want to give us a few moments to sit quietly before the Father and, and to, to look at the Father looking at you in love, to receive the Father's love for you. So I'll give you a few moments to do that, and then I'll just close our time in prayer. us in every season of life. Help us to be with you. I pray for my friends in this room this evening that are in the midst of a winter season of life where it feels dark and hopeless. God, would your presence be so close to them? Would they feel your nearness? Would they experience your love and care in tangible ways? Help us to trust you to remember that you are good and that you see us. You have not forgotten us. You are faithful. Help us to trust you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.